And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks. Thank you that we live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Lord, help us to be good listeners. Help us to be eager to know what you, the Lord our God, shall say. And help us to be doers of your word. As we come to it today, help me to get it right. And help me to... Do it in a way that honours you, our Saviour and our God. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, I wonder if uh, any of you are sufficiently affluent as to own two houses, two homes. You may have one in the city and one in the country. You may have one in the UK and one overseas. But however many homes a person owns, they can only occupy one at any given time, can't they? But the first century Colossian Christians had gone one better. They were privileged enough to live in two locations at the same time. I don't know how you rate life where you live in your London borough or beyond, but Colossae was a grim place to get stuck in. Industry had moved out to Laodicea, and on top of that, the town had experienced a devastating earthquake. It wasn't anyone's first choice of where to live. Life wasn't easy for Christians living in Colossae. Well, it may not be easy living where you are, but they and we have a second home we not only live in an earthly suburbia, with all the stresses associated with that, we also live in Christ, if we are Christian believers. And in him we have all we need, and from him no one and nothing can separate us. It's important to remember our two locations. They're there back in verse 2, and not forget them. We need to always remember where we live on earth, Christ hasn't yet taken his people out of the world. He's put us here to promote his interests and glory and grow in him through the variety of our earthly experiences. But we also need to keep before us that we live in Christ. At Colossae, well, place of insecurity socially, financially, to name but two. But in Christ a place of complete security. At Colossae, well, that's temporary. In Christ, that's our eternal home. Though inhabitants of this world, our citizenship is in heaven, 
and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what's the first thing Paul wants his privileged readers to know about himself? He wants them to know what he gets up to when he's on his knees on their behalf. And before we probe these verses in a little detail, I think there are three things coming out of them that we can learn from. The first thing is Paul's persistence in prayer for them. Paul's going to say a lot of things to his readers, but the first thing he wants them to know is that he brings them to God regularly and frequently. Did you pick that up from the reading? As Paul and Timothy met up in Paul's prison cell, he says back in verse 3, we always thank God. Verse 9, we have not stopped, have not ceased praying for you. It wasn't an on and off now and then thing for Paul. It was a constant. Nor was it a cop-out from actively helping them as far as he could. He spent time and effort teaching them by his writings, but he knew it was God alone who could make that effective and fruitful in their lives. The letter kicks off by giving its readers assurance then of the constant prayers for them that were going up from Paul and his colleague Timothy. Second thing he wants to tell them is about his priorities in prayer. I wonder what you pray for most when you bring your fellow Christians to the Lord? Do you major on physical health, freedom from pain? I'm always grateful when fellow Christians pray along those lines when I'm in pain or I'm ill. When I went down with COVID a few months back, a friend emailed me, at least I thought he was a friend, but in his email he said, how should I pray for you, brother? Should I ask God to heal you? or take you to be with Christ, which is better by far. (laughs) (laughs) Difficult answering, that one. (laughs) Do our prayers for others major on financial needs, housing needs, family needs? It's good to pray for all those things, isn't it? But should they be our priorities when we pray? I find I have to keep adjusting my praying by the prayers of the Bible. Because left to myself, my priorities aren't always God's. He reckons spiritual well-being should be top of the agenda. But do I? How do your prayers compare with Paul's? How do our collective prayers compare with Paul's? Paul's other priority in prayer is that of gratitude before requests. Verses 3 to 8 are taken up with gratitude. 9 to 14, with requests. Which one comes first then? Paul doesn't ask God to do anything for the Colossians until he has thanked God for them. And that's the norm in all his letters. It therefore has to be important, doesn't it? Paul thanks God for what he's done in the lives of his fellow believers before he asks God to do anything for them got to be a good example to follow I think isn't it we're meant to learn how to pray from bible prayers wouldn't it be a helpful thing when you pick up a prayer diary to pray for people in church to refuse to ask God for anything for them until you give them thanks for them 
Wouldn't it kill stone dead any proud superiority feelings we might have? Might it not stop us despising them in our hearts, saying unhelpful things about them behind their backs, having unkind thoughts towards them? Might it not wake us up to what God has done in them, having loved them as much as he's loved me? Wouldn't it bind us together if we expressed our gratitude to God for his grace in the lives of each other, especially those we struggle to get along with? I'm assuming, like me, you do that. One of the Getty hymns has a verse in it which says, Beneath the cross of Jesus, his family is my own. Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? Beneath the cross of Jesus, see the children called by God. So having encouraged his readers by reminding them of what the gospel has brought to them, faith in Christ, love for all saints, hope stored up in heaven, Paul then tells them what he asks God to do for them, which is what I'm meant to be talking about. So verse 9, what does it say? Let's read it again. He says, and so, that is, because I've heard of all that God has begun to do in your lives, I have every confidence to pray incessantly that he'll do more and more of what I'm asking him to do in your lives. And so, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What does he want for his readers? He wants them to be informed people, filled with the knowledge of God's will. It would be interesting, I think, if each of us were to write down what we reckon that means and how we get a hold of it, this knowledge of God's will. Some of you might say, well, it means something like knowing which house God wants me to buy. Is it number 37 or number 39? Others might say it means finding out which car in the showroom he wants me to opt for. Others might say it means finding out who God wants me to marry, if he does. Or what pair of socks to put on in the morning. I'll just go for the one that's at the top. Whether to go for a Chinese or an Indian takeaway tonight whether to become a hedge fund manager or a school teacher, whether to vote for Rishi Sunak or Lynn Truss. Well, you don't have to come up with a clever scheme to arrive at God's will in such matters. God has given you a renewed mind and he expects you to use it and to make decisions in the light of what you know in Scripture. The will of God isn't so much about where you live but about how you live, wherever you are located. It isn't so much about who you marry. In the ancient world, it was often decided for you, but about how you live as a Christian husband or wife or single person. It isn't so much about what job or career to pursue, but how you live and work within that place 
of uh, <coughs> service, <coughs> serving the Lord with integrity. A Christian prisoner whom I visit was very low at one point because in spite of his very hard work at his cleaning duties in the jail, one officer kept giving him a very hard time. And my colleague simply said to him, Colossians 3.23, which reads, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. How do I know that's what knowing God's will is about? Because that's what the New Testament is on about when it talks about knowing God's will. Here's just one more example from 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Knowing God's will is knowing how to live in a God-like way. And here's the reason, verse 10 and 11. Why do we need this knowledge? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See, that's why Paul wants his readers to be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they and we can live a life worthy of our Lord, doing what pleases him, developing the fruit of his spirit in our lives, engaging in every good work we can find with God's power, learning to cultivate endurance and patience, but doing it joyfully and gratefully, <clears throat> having been qualified by our Father above to share in such an inheritance that awaits God's people in, in heaven. And do notice that God does want it to produce joy and gladness. Living as a Christian is sometimes portrayed as a rather negative, miserable existence, but it isn't. An essential part of the Spirit's fruit is joy. Well, for whom does Paul pray this amazing prayer for the knowledge of what God wants? Is it just for grade A believers who he knows are going to make it? Is it for church leaders? Is it just for people with high IQs? No, it isn't. Even I get in on this. Who is he writing to? Well, back in verse 2, he says the letter is to God's holy people. Not some elite section, but all of them. Who is he giving thanks for in verse 3? Is it for some of them or all of them? Well, it's for all of them, isn't it? The words you and your sprinkled throughout that thanksgiving are all plural and inclusive of the whole church. Similarly, when he's praying, verses 9 to 14, it's the whole caboose. Please don't feel left out when you read letters like this, will you? This letter, including this prayer, is for every member of Christ's church, whether it's at Colossae or Bromley. 
So the question is, are you interested in knowing what God is looking for in your life? Do you want to please him? Or are you not bothered? It will be seen, won't it, in the amount of time and effort we put in to searching the scriptures. Whether it's on our own or whether it's together with God's people. What do we want God to strengthen us to do? Most in life. Getting promotion might be nice. Becoming affluent makes life comfortable. Staying healthy enough to enjoy our leisure and our pleasures? Or do we want God's power mainly so we can grow in endurance and patience? Things that aren't that popular outside or even inside church anymore. To be joyfully giving thanks for what the Father's brought us into and freely given us. How much we need the mind of Christ. Wouldn't it be great if we arranged our priorities and therefore our choices to go after what Paul was knocking on God's door for as he prays for these Colossians, the really big things in life as God looks at it? Well, it may not be an easy ride, mightn't it? Verse 11 lets on that we will need all endurance and patience Not everyone we meet with, work with, live alongside are pro-Christ, are they? By any means. But there really is no better and more fulfilling a way to live than to live pleasing God. But why should we bother, do you think? Why go to that sort of effort? Why should I put myself out for God and his glory? Well, he tells me why in verses 12 to 14. Look, he says, at what God has done for you. There are three things highlighted by Paul here. And the first is that God has qualified us. See that verse 12? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you for what? To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Can you get your head around that one? Give thanks to God. He's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In chapter 3 and verse 24, Paul encourages Christian slaves to work well for their masters, knowing, he says, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. Come on. Slaves receiving an inheritance? (laughs) Yes. To the Christians at Rome in chapter 8, he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, we're children of God, and if children then heirs, inheritors, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Can you get your head around that? Inheritors of all that Christ inherits. Who deserves to receive that kind of inheritance? Hmm? Are you qualified, for example, to inherit one of Her Majesty's royal estates? 
How would you feel if our gracious queen dropped you a line to say that when she pops her clogs, Sandringham will be yours? You're not qualified for that kind of inheritance, are you? If you are, I'd like to have a coffee with you before I go home. But that is nothing, is it, compared to what God has in store for all who join his family through Jesus our Saviour. Not one of us deserves such a share in heaven's future inheritance. We are all outsiders by birth and inclination. God alone makes each one of his people qualified for a share in Jesus' eternal riches. Is that not motivation enough to live all out for him? In verse 13, we discover God is not only our qualifier, he's also our rescuer. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Why should we bother to live a life pleasing to God, doing what he wants? We should bother out of heart gratitude for what he has already done for us. He's rescued us out of Satan's kingdom. He has brought us into the kingdom of his much-loved son. Not one of us has the power to free ourselves from the devil's clutches, from that kingdom of darkness. But here's some good news from Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children, that is the children of God, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who all their lives were held in slavery through their fear of death. It's interesting, isn't it, when you watch television, even listening to some comics, the fear of death that is in those guys. They don't know what the end will bring, and they dread it. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, he's taken you out of the kingdom of darkness and death and brought you into the kingdom of life in his son. So number one, God's qualified us. Number two, he's rescued us. Number three, he's redeemed us. Look at verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This son has paid the ransom price needed to liberate us from Satan who hijacked us. Through him we already have the forgiveness of sins. That's what verse 14 says, isn't it? I don't have to wait till judgment day to know what the verdict will be. I have it already. C.S. Lewis, the well-known Oxford Don and later Cambridge professor, was once asked on an any questions type of program, uh, Professor Lewis, what can Jesus Christ give me that no one else can give me? And I want the answer in just one word. And without hesitating a moment, that great Christian scholar simply said, forgiveness. The gospel offers us forgiveness. I don't have to work off my bad karma. 
I don't have to endure purgatory to top up what Jesus did. In trusting Jesus Christ, I am set free from the grip of darkness because I'm under the rule and management of a new authority, the kingdom of Jesus. And if gratitude for all that doesn't move me to grasp with both hands the faith and love and hope that come from believing in him, if it doesn't make me eager to know more God's will so I can live a life that pleases him, I need to ask myself some searching questions, don't I? Remember the film Saving Private Ryan? Recounts a story from the Second World War when a huge effort was made to rescue one soldier, the only surviving son of his parents. His brothers had all been killed in action. And many personnel lost their lives trying to save that one soldier. In a moving scene towards the end of the film, the dying captain of that rescue platoon, played by Tom Hanks, says to young Ryan, earn this, earn what's been done for you. In the final scene of the film, we see Private Ryan as an old man, and he's visiting the graves of some of those who'd given their lives for him, and he's asking himself the pointed question, was I good enough? Was I good enough for all that has been done for me? The cross of Jesus Christ says that he has paid all our debt to God. But we need to know that we can never be as good as to earn that great sacrifice. But out of sheer gratitude to him, we are called to lay our lives down. Daily, consistently following Jesus. Because love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what's entailed in pleasing him in every way and in every good work. So we are called on to pray for each other in the way Paul prayed for the Christians at Colossae. So let's hear again how he wants us to pray for each other as we read how he prayed for these Colossians. If you've got your Bible handy, have it open there at chapter 1. And uh, let's read it out together, shall we, from verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness 
of sins. Amen. Amen.